Hello and welcome back to the LT Guitarist podcast with me, your host, musician and music educator, Liam Taylor. The goal of the podcast is to enable listeners like you to earn income from the music that you make by sharing stories from my life as a working musician and the lives of other working musicians. One such working musician is today's interview. That wasn't a coherent sentence, but I think you know what I mean. Today I'm talking with Martin Keary, who you might know better as Tantacrawl. Martin has been uploading videos to YouTube for some years. In fact, chances are you have already seen his video about Sibelius and how horribly designed Sibelius is. Ooh, beep. And you know what? He makes a very good case for it. Sibelius is pretty horribly designed. We're going to talk a bit about Martin's background in music and what got him into YouTube in the first place and the pitfalls of YouTube as a platform. Oh, this whole podcast could just be dedicated to me slagging off YouTube, couldn't it? Hmm, that might not be the most constructive thing for my career. Let's go over to my interview with Martin Keary, AKA Tantacrawl now. As far as I'm concerned, the channel is doing its job when I'm discussing music in some form. But for me, that could be structure, could be harmony, um, but because I'm also a visual artist and a designer, um, it's turned to things like notation software um, and it's going to turn to things like visuals and music and how visuals combine nicely with music and stuff like that. So I kind of feel like as long as I'm talking about sound or music in some shape or form, that fits into the channel. And I like to do it in a kind of a entertaining way. And I also like to throw in what I think is an original way or a semi-original way of of communicating the ideas, I suppose you might say. I'm just reaching forward for my tea. Um, that's about as good as I think I'm going to do. So there you go. That's that's my channel. The thing that appeals to me about your channel and your content and your delivery is how relentlessly brutal you are about things that annoy you or things that are poorly designed or things you just, for whatever reason, do not like. With YouTube in particular, a lot of the delivery is this kind of exhausting enthusiasm that just, as a Brit, does my head in. So when I see people presenting stuff in a kind of more relaxed but massively sarcastic way like yourself, uh, David Bruce is much the same. And I'd actually say Adam Neely's style of presentation is very British because it's not that crazy. Hey, guys, smash the like button, whatever. Um, yeah, he doesn't. He won't cover music he doesn't like. Or and if he does, well, maybe maybe that. I mean, I assume he doesn't. That's that's how, yeah. that's what I believe about him, and that's what I believe about David Bruce as well. That those guys, they want to push the stuff that they're interested in. Yeah. Um, and they'll just quietly ignore the things that they think are crap. And now yeah. I, I know both those guys can go for it. Especially Adam can go for it with like the A equals four three two, which I loved. <laughs> which I'm incredibly irritated about because I was in the middle of writing a A equals 432 video myself. Yeah, of course uh, you were. And, and then I came back. Yeah, like it was just after the sonification one. It was, I was obviously going to do something like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but that aside, um, yeah, I agree with you on that. And I do agree with you that there are some irritatingly saccharine, um, I guess I'd say channels that are trying to, you know, maximize the amount of hits they get from mm. the algorithm by just mentioning the right popular you know, name 
oh hey um, I keep thinking Britney Spears but when is Britney Spears popular um, it just shows how out of touch I am but let's just say like Nicki Minaj oh Nicki Minaj has this great track it just dropped yeah so, yeah yeah great that's amazing do you actually like this music or are yeah. you just hoping that someone will come to your channel and, and, and hit, give you a like and then you'll get more stats and all this well I guess it is a kind of clickbait you're not fake newsing in order to get uh, views but you are basically enthusing about things that just happen to be popular I know that there's some YouTubers and I do agree with it who kind of go you can go two ways in YouTube you can either say mm. wow gee this new great thing happened it's so great here's how it works and you kind of think well, yeah it kind of goes from the first and then it goes to the fifth and it goes back to the first again that's really <laughs> great um, but do you really like it and then there's the other ones which are relentlessly whingy brutal always like whatever is popular they go the opposite direction this kind yeah. of binary way that you and I can and I totally appreciate that too for me it just it has to be justified so mm. I mean now that said I have made one or two videos when uh, when I started that looking back to me aren't justified where I kind of didn't really you know I, I made a couple of decisions about including bits of content that I slagged off which looking back I would never do now yeah. but um, that's more just uh, I think me just not really knowing what I was doing um, <laughs> But um, but yeah uh, yeah it has to be it has to be valid and you have to actually believe in what you're saying and and be fair in your criticism and also make sure that the targets you're hitting are people who are in the public eye themselves and who are probably putting an idea out into the public to be yeah. discussed. You know, lay off people who who are just having a bit of fun and uh, you know, yeah, just yeah, show that's true. covering a song on the internet and that's in in particular where I've gone wrong I think in the past. But anyway. We'll circle back to YouTube in a little bit and and your playing okay. and your bands and so forth in shortly. Um I want to go right back as far as we possibly can to the first musical experience that you remember. Can we talk about the first time you either remember playing music or experiencing music and realising that actually this could be a bigger part of your life than just something you casually enjoy? How do we get from that point to whatever your first thing in professional music is? There's a couple of... uh hit points hit points there's a couple of um saved memories that i have um cool. and um well i mean there's also a couple of stories i mean I, I, my, one of my uncles apparently heard me whistle or no sing uh, the carnation street theme when okay. i was a kid when i was a tiny little baby yeah. and i was going na 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 <laughs> and he would oh that's the carnation street theme that that kid's got talent he could pick up a tune um <laughs> you should really teach him um music and you should get him violin lessons so my parents you know they did they, they weren't musicians themselves my mom actually was was a singer in a choir i'll get to that but um sure. but they didn't play anything and um they then sent me for violin lessons and just being a little bit temperamental as a kid mm. i really didn't like or uh, i i've I just didn't enjoy being screeched at while while playing scales. It's such an unforgiving instrument to start a kid really on. Is. My very first one was violin as well, and I hated how it sounded. I hated how my hands felt. I was like, "Why didn't you just give me a piano?" I mean, let's not get into the whole this this whole discussion about how horrible how kids can be turned off music their entire lives based on a year or two of bad lessons they get from a teacher. Yeah, and also each kid is different. Like I, I really, I was really, I loved drawing things and I loved creating things and I liked getting results. You know, because I guess kids don't really want to put in, well, at least me as a kid, I didn't want to put in a gigantic amount of effort. And I didn't yeah. understand this concept of put in the work and in a couple of years you'll see results. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I I just didn't like it. I was going to this place to do these scales that didn't make any sense to me and I hated it. And I mm. told my parents, I don't want to do this anymore. And they said, OK. Um, so fast forward a couple of years and I, I was definitely, at that point, I was really into draftsmanship and drawing and um, very much into... I suppose English and um, reading and all this kind of stuff, you know, definitely mm. on uh, definitely that that kind of person in in, in school, and um, 
And then I began to get more interested in music towards the age of about 10, 12, because mainly because my mom would bring me to um, to see Beethoven a lot. She's a Beethoven fanatic. And cool. she'd bring me to see the fifth and she'd bring me to see the ninth every single time I came to the national, or not national, the uh, concert hall in Limerick, which mm. incidentally is a brilliant concert hall, uh, a really modern one. And, and it's really terrible that, uh, it, you know, so few things ever come there. Um, but I saw, I, like, I saw the Rite of Spring in, in the concert hall. I saw so many of, of the great, like, pieces of repertoire in the concert hall in Limerick. Um, so I saw a lot of that. And I also noticed my mom's kind of amazement and, and, uh, and how she'd be stunned after each one of these performances. And I really enjoyed it. Like, I loved all the drama and everything of, of the, the, um, the big crescendos, especially in the ninth towards the mm. end. Uh, but I didn't quite, and I'd look at her and I kind of see the reaction that she'd have, and I kind of go, "Oh my God, she's she's blown over by this." And that kind of definitely that stuck with me a little bit. Um, and then uh, it's so cliched; it's almost it's just embarrassing. But I'm a I'm a kid of the '90s, right? And grunge was a thing of the '90s, and I, I yeah. still like a lot of the grunge bands. But Nirvana were the one that spoke to me the most, mainly because even though I was a kid of the '90s, I wish I'd been a kid of the '80s so that I could have actually seen any of these bands. Yes. But I heard about I literally heard about Nirvana the week that Kurt Cobain died. Um, I just heard Smells Like Teen Spirit the week that week, and then the guy who showed me went, "Oh, you know that singer I showed you the other day? He he died." And of course that. That just, you know, for me was just laser focused me on this one story, which I just thought was fantastic and amazing. And did I say fantastic? I mean, compelling yes. um, and, and brutal and spoke to me a lot. And then I just picked up guitar. I asked my dad, could I have one? He got me an acoustic and he said, you can learn to play electric um, once you can. Or sorry, I'll get you lessons for the acoustic guitar uh, once you can play. I think it was eight or nine chords. So okay. I sat down and I started learning these chords and yeah, it seemed like a fair enough transaction. It was a good idea, I think. Um, hmm. and, uh, and then I heard, uh, and then I kind of, I think I kind of semi gave up. I sort of played a little bit. And then a couple of weeks later, we went to Dublin. We met a couple of my friends in Dublin and one of them had a guitar and he was really good. And he played Smells Like Teen Spirit on, a, on an electric guitar and then let me have a go and showed me how to finger the bar chords for it. And that was it. That was, that was the thing that made me take off because uh, I could do sure. it. And the electric guitar sounded absolutely amazing to me. Like yep. I couldn't believe how amazing it sounded. And I was like... Right, yeah, let's get the chords out of the way. Let's get some lessons out of the way. Let's do a summer job and let's save up for an, an electric guitar. And that was mm. the that was the vision. Uh, yeah. And from there, really, I never really st- uh, looked back. And it was it, like within a year, I was writing my own songs and, you know, all that kind of stuff that people do. So maybe about 11, 12. Um, was also very much into recording. Actually, even earlier than that, I was very much into recording on cassette player and doing... We couldn't do multi-track, but we could do crazy stuff with the single track recorder that we had by just holding half, holding down the record button. So I used to do a lot of sonic experiments, I guess, like that as well. So maybe the writing was on the wall, maybe even earlier than than 11. But Cool. Yeah, so that, is, those, that kind of hodgepodge of different stories is sort of how I, how I got, got started. Wicked. In our email back and forth, you were, you, you very strongly wanted to talk about failure. Uh, you seem to be quite an advocate of uh, getting things wrong, and I, my my day job is in music education, and and we have um, a lot of conversations about like, yeah, I know you, I know you tried to play that song, and I know it went horribly wrong. I'm not going to lie to you, but actually, now that you've done the horrible version, you can get it out of the way and you can move forward. So, yeah, I, I just want to talk about your experiences with failure, and I guess crucially, how you turn a a failure into a success. How can you build upon getting things wrong? Yeah, I, I, I suppose I, I picked, I mentioned failure because last night, I, what was it, two nights ago, I just had a bit of a, it just occurred to me that it was an interesting mm. topic to discuss. Um, it's interesting you brought up, uh, you know, an aspect of it that I didn't even think of, which of course is, 
you know, you have to fail at a piece, you know, if you're learning skills, you need to fail a whole bunch of times before you yeah. get good at it. And that's kind of how you learn, of course. Um, and I guess that's just that's just true on a macro level, you know, I, I, um, when it comes to, you know, your career or big goals that you set yourself and everything. Um, I guess I wanted to talk about failure because I think it it's linked to YouTube. OK, interesting. At least it is. It is, it is yeah. for me, because, you know, my my goal once I started getting into music properly was to finish art college, which I decided I'd, I'd do. I'd, I'd go to art college, I'd study graphic design because that's what I wanted to do. But I was in a band and I had been in a band for about 10 years. And for me, the band was the reason why I didn't need to go and study music because sure. I had that. Yeah. Um, and the plan was, right, the band, I should also mention that we were in, uh, we had a local scene, um, which was a sort of a DIY punk scene, which we just happened to have an enormous amount of talent in the scene, like organizational mm. talent. And um, they brought big bands, like they brought Fugazi to our hometown, for example. Um, and they brought big bands over to Limerick and then people in Limerick got to support them. And and then we got to experience what it's like to play to 300 people. We got to experience what it's like to be lifted up in the air and thrown around the place, you know, to a crowd that's going wild and all this, even though we ourselves could barely play our instruments. And that's that's a big motivator. Uh, and that, that set me off definitely down the track of, well, I know we're good enough. I just know we don't have the skills. We don't have the money. We don't have the marketing. And we definitely don't have the time because we're all in university. So let's finish university. Uh, there was three of us. And then we'll, all I used to say is we'll go yeah. pro. And we and we did. I did anyway. Definitely went pro, as in I didn't take up the job in graphic design that I was offered. I uh, started doing you know sound engineering in in the local venues. I started doing odd jobs here and there, anything I could to do with music. And I started scraping together money mm. um, in order to finance our band. And looking back, we just we had no money at all. Like we couldn't afford a, a van. We couldn't afford new amplifiers. Everything was a total nightmare. Um, if if it broke, to try and replace. And uh, and absolute dis- disinterest in our country, and I think across the world, because Napster had just la- landed, and that obviously tore up the the assumptions we had, which were we didn't realize it tore it up, but it basically removed the entire concept of if you get albums in in, in a shop, then people will buy the albums. We managed to get albums in a shop all over the country, but you know they never got bought uh, because yeah, you know, people just suddenly this online thing mm. took over, and uh, I mean, it, we they probably wouldn't have got bought anywhere, or but it might have got a little bit enough to you know give us money to buy a yeah, van yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. But um, so then you know, just the writing was on the wall after a couple of years. Even though we got really good, and even though I got, I, I learned an enormous amount doing this, especially in terms of marketing, uh, social media was something I just did mm. not get and did not understand. Especially like MySpace at the time was the way that you went. Uh, and the thing just eventually imploded and it was really, really upsetting to me and upsetting to the other band members who were my best friends and still are. Um, and then I said, OK, well, I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to go to London. This isn't we just can't keep going like this because we have no money and we have no way of even touring. We lose money touring you know, or, or just about lose mm-hmm. money touring. It was unsustainable. And my plan was, OK, well, I think we need money. And in order to get money, I have a pretty decent degree. Um, there's a lot of money in London. Why don't we all move to London to be musicians? And that's when the other guys kind of went, well, we're not too interested in moving to London. So I found myself going to London, you know, without any band or, or and leaving behind the, all the people that I knew. And that's when I had to form like a whole new yeah. plan, which was, yeah. I can read music kind of. So let's, let's study piano from, from grade zero to grade eight. And then after that, learn composition. And then after that, apply for a master's in university. And let's just go that route. You know, and it was just, and it's all born of the failure of the first band, which, you know, was, you know, as I said, very emotionally kind of upsetting for me. And because uh, it, it was yeah, what yeah. I wanted to do. Incidentally, 
uh, the first job I had in London was in an advertising firm, <laughs> which couldn't yes. have been, I couldn't have chosen a place um, more distinctly different from where I'd come from, where, pe- <laughs> where people are sort of honest and where we approach things critically. And when we're, you know, we're, when we see something that's BS, we, we, you know, we sl- we're honest about it and we look for emotional authenticity. And then you go into an advertising firm where they ask you to animate a Pringles can and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a pretty horrible. That that was one of the other driving motivator, motivators. I was like, I cannot live in this world. I cannot. This cannot be what I do with my life. And um, yeah, so I guess yeah, that that's my big failure story, I suppose. And and interesting. Yeah, and and I guess uh, it's yeah, it's I, I don't know I don't know where I'm going at the moment, but I, I wouldn't imagine I would call anything I've done recently a failure. Like you know, I've, I maybe hasn't reached the gigantic heights of being the next Britney Spears, but you know, um, I've I've got this through line now. I'm gonna just work, I'm gonna run with it and see where it goes. It is interesting how, as you say, Napster just kind of appeared, completely well, largely overhauled the music industry in a way that people working in music on on I guess we say on on the ground level didn't know what to do. It's it's. It's something that music is so digital these days. It's so hard to imagine a time before that or even a time when it just comes in and just completely screws your life up, I guess, in a way. It's yeah, it's weird, it's weird especially when you consider the time itself, which we didn't realise was a time of optimism. You know? Oh, man. Um, yeah. And there might have been some money in people scouting and looking for bands and trying to find interesting music out yeah. there. And, and that just didn't, you know, Napster put paid to that. Although... Yeah. Not to be completely 100% pessimistic, it is really nice to know that those scumbags who charged twenty nine ninety nine for a CD, which cost them about maybe 12p mm. to make for a reproduced CD, yeah. that, that they weren't able to do that anymore. So, you know, that was a disgrace. And I'm glad that that was, was that put, uh, stop was put to that. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. Silver lining, I guess. Yeah, silver lining. So how do we get from the moving to London, the advertising firm, how do you then, how do you get from there to your first YouTube upload? Okay, well, I was working in advertising, um, wasn't too fond of that. Uh, I realized that, you know, with the emergence of, of applications and the iPhone and Facebook and all this, there was a lot of money in, in software. Um, and I liked designing software, so I moved into that. Um, then that kind of gave me a bit of finance and that allowed me to start studying music in, in with any free time that I had. So I studied all the grades for piano, studied all the grades for music theory, um, uh, then studied with the composition professor um, who who owns his own school of music, which is actually doing really well now. Uh, his name is Juan Rizzuto. Shout out to Juan. Um, thanks for teaching me some basic stuff about composition and then some advanced stuff later on. Um, after that, then I just started applying for conservatoires uh, and I, um, I got accepted for a master's course um, in the Royal Conservatory of Scotland, which is the RCS for short, uh, in Glasgow. And that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. I studied under the composition professor, Gordon McPherson. Um, they really um, they really emphasised the individuality of, of composers coming in there. And it was really the right fit for me, that place. Uh, I got on very well with Gordon, still do. And um, then after that, myself and my wife decided, once I got my degree, we decided, well, we actually, this is part of the, the big plan that I had, um, uh, which was, right, get the degree. And then the second you get the degree, we have to have kids because we're not getting any younger. And she was waiting for me to to finish this course. We actually got married, I think, the week before I started the course. Had kids directly after I got my degree. Uh, kids, I say kids because it turned out to be twins. Um, and uh, twins were a lot of work. 
and uh, and that was a, and I knew you know I was gonna I knew that I couldn't just go globe trotting and, and and getting performances all the time so I had to kind of rein it in um, with twins I had to adjust because twins are a whole different kettle of fish. Um, yeah. One person just cannot, when they're young, look after them by themselves. Uh, maybe some people can, but we totally couldn't. Uh, they're very mild. I, I, I don't want to be alarming. They had some health issues, and it required us to be uh, to be there with them most of the time together. Two people. So, um, so going to rehearsals, going abroad, skiving off, and just doing whatever I wanted was out, out of the question. And um, uh, I just thought, okay, well, what can I do in the meantime? And I thought, well, I'd like to study. Um, you know, when the kids get a bit older, then I can maybe get back out there again and I'll do whatever I'll do performances you know and rehearsals as much as I possibly can but maybe if I study a bit then you know maybe I'll be even better as a composer and it's a little boring just sitting there reading theory uh, when I can't apply it and practice it so I thought of the YouTube channel because I was a really big fan of Red Letter Media you know those guys um, loved the Plinkett reviews of Star Wars because they're really informative uh, really kind of well made and really funny and blisteringly uh, like well, not blisteringly unfair, but a little deliberately unfair in places, and just really, really funny. And I loved, um, I loved how um, technically they broke down all the shots and everything, and how they pointed out the logic of the movie. And I just thought, wow, YouTube can do long form comedy criticism uh, that's more complicated than anything you'd see in mainstream media. And I thought, like, sounds perfect for for a music channel. So I thought. I, at the time, I thought of myself as I want to be a kind of like kind of like the red letter media of of music, except I don't want to I don't want to do exactly what they're doing. I want to talk about music in a structured way, but I also want to inject a bit of my own personality and humor into it. And also, I have an animation background and a bit of a, a, a film background, and I want to kind of make use of those skills too. Um, and I just started by doing a composition tutorial, um, and that was okay. And I threw in a couple of jokes. It was a bit wooden. And I kind of thought, okay, this is going well, and released that. Got you know, like you say, a couple of hundred views, and and then I started the whole. I'm going to post my own stuff on Reddit. Oh, Reddit doesn't like when I do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is actually hard. It's hard to get your stuff out there. Um, Reddit will make you feel like a failure, <laughs> and not not in a constructive way. <laughs> oh God, there is an art to Reddit. You want to talk about failure? Talk about trying to post stuff on Reddit. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a dark art, right? Trying to get yeah. trying to get your stuff on Reddit. It's funny uh, when you do when you release something on Reddit, and if it does well, the Reddit comments are more cantankerous than the YouTube comments, which is quite funny. I've had some success with Reddit, but like for every success I've had, I've had some many many painful comments. Just there's something about Reddit users; they know exactly what to say to like really hurt you deeply. What kind of comments hurt you? That's an interesting. Like what what are the what particular brand of criticism gets gets your goat? Um, I get called fat a lot, which is great because I am. Um, that's pretty. That's I get pretty boring British, um, which is interesting because I am British. That's true. Well done. Like, yeah, just weird stuff that like is true about myself. But you're saying it like a negative, and I don't understand that. <laughs> Or you'll always get things where like, actually, in this measure, you refers to this note as this note. When actually, I think you'll find it's this note. And like, I actually don't care that much. That's actually I, those are the kind of criticisms I'm glad I get because I I have I've been known to, well, I am I've been known to. I've definitely made a couple of mistakes in, in previous videos where I kind of go, I, I you know very you know you know the ones I'm talking about where you yeah 
you've said the wrong inversion of this chord and someone will call you out on it. And then it kind of takes the sweet feeling away from the video when you know you got a, an error you can't correct or edit out. But what I found about um, music theory and like interpretations of music is actually a lot of it, a lot of it is interpretation and there's a million different ways to say different things. Like um, I can't remember what the video I did recently was, but I think I made the point that a pair of notes... Um, if you're a guitarist, you'd call any pair of notes either a power chord or a double stop, even though we know technically a power chord is a root and a five, and you can have any number of roots and any number of fives, but a power chord is that. But blues musicians will call it a double stop, and a double stop is something that comes from uh, traditional violin string instruments. But actually the most correct word to describe any pair of notes is a dyad, but I never use that word because I'm a guitar player. So even though there are technically correct ways of saying things in music theory a lot of it is about perspective and interpretation and ultimately it's all based on what some dudes in togas said a very long time ago so maybe we should alter some of the language these days maybe but then yeah, yeah Reddit is, doesn't it like does, that it either. does definitely youtube definitely shows up the lack of standardization with the names of certain things across across the different genres um, yeah, that one. I've actually come across that one as well. People going, "Hey, no, it's a double stop." What are you talking about? And, and like, but those ones are just like that's the name of this thing. It's if you get if it's, it's if you get the theory wrong, the actual you know if you if you're describing a phenomenon that isn't actually correct, or if you get the science behind it incorrect, that that's a real problem. I've done one or two of those as well, by the way. You know, um, I think we all have. Or it's usually just it's just usually just misnaming a chord or something. Mm. The comments that bother me the most are uh, the ones where. Um, people go, you've been really mean unfairly to a person who didn't deserve it. Uh, those ones really get me. And I kind of go, oh, God. Uh, there was one video where I just sort of, I, call, I, I used an example for a joke of a student doing some sonification. It was really crap, by the way. You know, it was really, you know, it was really hard not to. But it didn't even occur to me. I just sort of thought, here's a person who's released something on YouTube glowing about this sonification technique they've used. And I, and I was thinking, so unoriginal. It's been done so many times. I'm so sick of this. You know, it's the whole cli climate change thing. I'm going to take data from climate change and I'm going to convert the data into some notes and then I'm going to get musicians to play it. It's the music of climate change. And you kind of think, it's like such an uh, irritating sort of... Um, emotional manipulation and I, and I started thinking you know god and I just kind of used it as a minor, minor example I went I didn't I didn't actually criticize it too much I just kind of showed it um, and one person just really took exception to that went you know you're just attacking some fresher in university you know who's who's really not thought this through and when I look back at it I was thinking oh god I, I can't really defend myself there that, that person's right and and then that like then the problem there is I would totally cut that I would totally cut a whole bunch of only three or four comments from one of my previous videos I wouldn't say my videos are rife with this stuff but a couple are um, uh, there's a couple of errors here and there but I'd love to go back and just edit those out in a way that isn't really jarring and awful like let me edit it out and let me go and re-upload it but not lose all the views and not lose all the you know the credit and everything YouTube just cannot figure out how to do that I mean I, I know I know why I know some of the I know the ways you can game a system like that but I think you can solve it too and that's really frustrating you know It's interesting you bring up the sonification video um, I did some work um in sonification, but kind of turning visual uh, art into sound or music or audio. And actually your video on sonification, like when you type in sonification, it's one of the things that comes up. So I watched that and I think that was the first thing of yours I really saw. And I was just like, my, honestly, my reaction was, I really want to do this work, but I really don't want to piss this guy off. So because of your critique, it made me think actually a bit about, well, 
I'm using this software uh, called Photo Sounder that just takes an image and turns it into sound. And actually, so it reads it left to right. Um, the brightest bits of the image are the loudest volumes. So black is no sound, white is a lot of sound. And then it reads it left to right. So left to right is time. And then bottom to top is frequency. So I was sort of playing around with tweaking this and kind of, oh, if I do this, I get a much nicer sound. But then watching your video, I was like, yeah, but if I'm tweaking it too much and deliberately making it sound nice, then is that even, is it music? Is it, but is it true? So I'm using something as a reference, as a source to create music or sound art or whatever. But is it true to the original source material? If, you know, where where is the line? Where do I, where do I stop tweaking because it then doesn't become, it's then not true to the original source. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Like, um, oh, there's so many, there's so many avenues here. There's so many things. Like, I think it's pretty straightforward how you, how these things can be thought about. Like any experiment you do that produces a sound and you like that sound is completely fine. It yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned that uh, there was a piece of software you used that uh, read black and white imagery and then converted that to sound because I just came across a piece of it was an invention that was um, made in uh, created in 1913 i think called the optophone just found about out about this the other week um and it was something that was to aid uh, people in being able to read books people who were blind um and the it, it had some crazy sort of um circuitry around a, a, what looks like a magnifying glass not magnifying um a microscope uh, and it's a big big block of a thing and you'd move it it basically would you move it over a book and it would look at the black ink against the white background and it would uh, be attached to a bunch of amplifiers uh, or or s some pieces of circuitry that would take whatever signals they're getting and would be able to convert that into a unique type of sonified sound. And that way then that a H would sort of sound a bit different to an A and reliably so. And then this weird s sequence of, of um, sonified sounds um, could be learned by someone who was blind and then that would be their way of actually reading a book letter by letter. They just know. And this is before, well, maybe not before Braille, but this thing, the Optophone, actually was commercially released and was a, a competitor to Braille, I think, for ages. Um, I'm not, I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite, I think it's day is done now, but it's an amazing idea, just the idea of taking something visual, converting it to, you know, abstract sounds that you then learn that actually mean something that's in the real world. And, and I guess uh, to lead off from that, that's one avenue that um, people are interested in with sonification, which is, is there something we can learn about the world as it is? from listening to data, from listening to it in some way, shape or form. Convert what you have in front of you, some parameters about it. Could be like when it happened over time or changes to it over time. It could be taking visual mapping from it, from, you know, from some place or other and converting that into sound, like, for example, observing the sun or observing the stars. And sound, be, um, because our ears can pick up um, uh, individual sounds from background noise a whole lot better than our eyes can. Uh, sometimes has been found to pick out interesting sort of patterns in data um, that then, you know, further science or further discovery in some sense or other. Yeah, because we're kind of, we're tuned to sort of hear rhythms and patterns, aren't we? So if you if you notice a pattern in pitch or a pattern in rhythm, that's an indication, oh, this specific area of data is something to look further in at, look at, sort of zoom in just, on. Just yeah. another another tool in, in a scientist's uh, work belt that helps them to, to figure out what things are and how things are working. And that's really practical. And then... I think like what you were doing, I mean, to me, what you were doing sounds fine. I, I was messing around with some stuff to get a sound. What what bothers me and what bothers me in the video, and, and I think 
my only reluctance about or my only misgiving about that video was I don't think I stated it clearly enough was I can't stand when people take data from something make music from it and then go and make that the program note afterwards and go hey I took data from the Israel-Palestine conflict and, and I converted it into sound and of course as we all know the conversion process you can make it whatever you want like you can make it the happiest trippiest thing ever you can make it the saddest most desolate thing ever if you put it into the Phrygian dominant mode it's going to sound like you're in a desert somewhere it's it's so easy. <laughs> so you can just manipulate the data and it basically means that you didn't even need the data to begin with. And then you and then you got your program note right out of the can. Israel-Palestine conflict and I've written some music. Listen to it. Oh, da, 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 da. And you go, oh, it's so desolate and horrible. Really, you know, it's interesting the way the data um, brings forth these eerie sounds that really, you know, it's all connected in some weird way. There is a God. And, and I think that's what drives me insane. You know, it's just it's 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 clickbait again, really, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that like it's kind of clickbait. Yeah, it's clickbait. It's just a lie. It's the sort of thing that kind of I'm just going to be really brutal. Lonely people who listen to Radio Four would really love. Oh, Israel Palestine sounds like this. It's really gloomy. No, it doesn't. Oh yeah, I know what you mean by Radio Four. That's actually one place I heard it before. I remember Radio Four used to do this. Oh, a scientist has looked in, looked into space and he's taken the data from some stars and he's converted those data into music and now you can hear the sounds of the celestial heavens. Ting, ling, ling, chink, 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 chink. Loads of wind chimes and everything. You can't, and I listened to it kind of going, what if you chose tubas? What if you chose vuvuzelas? <laughs> you know, would it sound, why did you choose that particular sound? Is it because we have a bias about what the yeah. heavens might sound yeah. like? Yeah, <laughs> come on. Give me a break. If you put de- if you put death metal on a glockenspiel, it's going to sound like space. Like one one of those really short Slayer songs, um, or just or just like three three seconds of Slayer uh, re- represents every single time a, a star uh, twinkles in the sky. How's that going to sound? But the, yeah, but they always choose wind chimes and they always choose the Celeste. I think that sort of neatly covers your journey into YouTube. I'm wondering if there was a specific point or a specific upload where you realised. Oh yeah, no. This is something I perhaps should pursue um, a little more with a little more structure or a little more time. I'm not certain there was an, an an individual video that made me go, "Wow, it's all taken off here." Certain things, certain little milestones in my own mind um, definitely stand out. I mean, I remember when um, I released a Hallelujah video, which was which for me was a total experiment because I'd done this one kind of quite dry video about composition about uh what was it uh tra- transitions it was called yeah yeah and that after that video it was quite dry composition sort of video um and then I tried out this other one which was something that sort of drove me nuts a bit which is in the early verses of hallelujah when people cover it they tend to they tend to just for some reason jump an octave uh, and do weird warbly things and for me, it's like, you know, if you're interpreting the song, go for it, interpret, interpret the song. If you're going to, like, basically do the Jeff Buckley version, the John Cale version, just, you know, do it the way they do it, because they do it well. And and it's obviously connected to the exact words that they're singing, and there's an obvious direction that's happening here. You know, they're going up and they're coming down. It's really basic stuff. And uh, and I kind of released that, and I, I posted it on Reddit myself, and kind of went, I've got this really great video you want to you wanna check out. And, you know, and, and then overnight... Um, because I posted it just before I went to bed overnight. Uh, I woke, you know, it spread a little bit and I woke up and I had 300 new subscribers from 10, 20, whatever. And I, and I remember just looking at my, my Gmail and seeing all the subscriptions. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, and then I saw that I had lots of comments and I had like a thousand views or something like that. And I was, oh my God, I've had a thousand views. I never thought this was possible. And um, uh, I, I mean, that for me was kind of, 
the sort of justification that it could be funny, that someone might actually be inclined to watch my stuff. Um, and that kind of gave me a bit more motivation to go ahead and try out other things. Uh, but then it was a long time before I got another one of those. Um, I did the sonification one that was just a, in terms of views, a swing and a miss. Um, actually, all of them were a swing and a miss after that, uh, because that's that's the way YouTube is. You just there's a certain point where it goes, we're gonna okay, we're gonna give you views now, uh, and that's what happened. Um, I think the the one that kind of kicked off my channel, if we're being honest, is the um, the Sibelius one. Um, before that, before that, the second Eurovision video did quite well, and that was beginning to really take off, and then it got taken down, and then. You know, that got me like a couple of thousand subscribers, which was a really big deal. And that kind of made me think like, oh, I was about to take off and then they cut me. Um, but I kind of had this feeling like I've got momentum now. I think I think it's going to happen. So I did the Sibelius um, uh, video. And then <clears throat> I remember it just started taking off by itself. And then all my other videos started taking off too. And the Hallelujah one started getting recommended. And the guitar cover one, which I think we were, gonna, we were going to uh, collaborate on. Um, that one really took off, and that's actually one of my least favorite videos that I've done. And um, that one, like that one's passed a million views uh, recently. And the Hallelujah one's kind of not far off. Uh, and then all the all my backlog started doing well, and the Sonification one started doing well, and all the other ones too. Um, and that was kind of crazy. And then there was a period. I remember there was one day where I got something like I think I got like ten thousand subscribers in two days or something. And 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 I looked at it and I kind of went, "This is now this is insane." Um, now that, that was a very, very high peak and a very quick fall off after that. It wasn't obviously I don't have that many. I've only got like a, not not quite a hundred thousand yet. But for me, that that, uh, that was a big moment. And then I started getting emailed and contacted constantly by people about all my videos all at the same time because basically all my videos. It's like I launched all my videos all at once and they all did well. Um, and I was inundated. It was a little bit petrifying actually because just my e I didn't even want to look at my email. I was getting rang constantly. I took a couple of days off work just to be able to deal with the admin. Um, that's when I realized I've put a lot of personal data up online. You know, I mean, there's, there's some, like my channel, my channel, my forwarding address to my channel is my own personal email address. I should probably sort that out. Um, uh, you know, fixed a couple of those things. And um, that was, yeah, that, that was another kind of uh, big moment. But I think along the way and, and after that, um, one of the things that kind of emerged in my mind was that YouTube is is a viable way, I think, for a musician, well, potentially viable way for a musician to get together an audience for themselves so that when they want to release music in the future, they can just honestly go, hey guys, if you're interested, I've made some music. I've, I talk about it a lot. If you want to see me actually do it and, and put it into practice, then I can I can do that. I, I'm in the middle of you know writing a whole bunch of music. I, I had a concert in Dublin last week, which I intend to release soon enough. Um, and, then, and and for me, it's just, that's, that's a way of getting around this whole publishing problem at the moment is just become your own publisher and become your own marketer. And, and for me, it's like, and instead of just putting ads on the tube, actually make entertaining stuff that people might want to see and listen to. And then you just go, hey, guys, I've released something. If you're interested, maybe become a patron and, and patronize me. And um, if you're not, then fine. You don't have to listen to it. Um, and that feels that feels great. It feels nice that there's a potential way for me to actually release my music to people who may want to listen to it. Um, and that's that's sort of what I'm thinking about at the moment, too. But also, I just love the YouTube side of it. I love the talking and all that. Uh, I, I love I love just commenting on things and, and I I love the buzz of seeing a video take off. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've answered your question and I've put a little honey on it as well with lots of other random stuff. Um, what sort of time frame are we looking at between your first upload and then the point where you were getting several thousand interactions a day, like just approximately three years, 10 years? What do you reckon? Uh, I would say... I'd say the milestones are a thousand view, a uh, thousand subscribers. The next milestone's ten, 
Um, and it re- really feels to me like those were milestones. Uh, I think the first thousand was about a year. Um, um, the next 10 probably took about eight months. Um, I remember I languished on seven for ages. Like, I can't get past 7,000. Um, and then after seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, flew by. Uh, and then I was, and after the whole Sibelius thing, the thing I described, the big, the big sort of coming out party for my channel, uh, I think I landed on around 50. And then I kind of started building again. So from January 50 to where I am now, about 1991, 92. Um, uh, so I think, I think really around January was when I kind of felt like I'm kind of, I wouldn't say I'm yet established. I'm, I'm not that well known. I'm, I mean, compared to some other channels, I'm certainly still a bit small fry. But um, but now when I release a video, people I know about and I followed will sometimes talk about them. Uh, so that, I think, started happening around January. Properly, when I released the MuseScore video, it, it became obvious then after that. And, and since then, when I release a video, which I actually think is just one more video, um, when I release uh, videos, I, I generally see them being discussed or, or thrown around by people who I would normally follow. And that kind of feels to me like, okay, I'm kind of a YouTuber now. I'm sort of known. Um, so yeah, I, I would say I was, the Sibelius one kicked it off and then there was about three months of craziness and then I, I emerged on the other side as someone who can release a video and, and expect to see a couple of, you know, expect, expect to see 50,000, let's say, views on a video as long as it doesn't get pulled or demonetized or whatever, you know, all that stuff. I, I, I guess one thing I, I wanted to mention was uh, at the moment... Um, a really super part-time on YouTube. It's been like a couple of months between releases mm. uh, and that's just more a, it's actually again a hangover from Sibelius. There's a couple of things going on and, and I'm not trying to be secretive. I literally can't talk about them. There's a couple of things going on which are all in service of the channel which I've been doing um, which I'm hoping to release and hoping to have a better release cadence maybe towards the mm. end of the year. And some of the stuff I've been doing will come out there and one or two things I'm really excited about. But uh, yeah, that's kind of, for anyone listening, that's why I've kind of gone cold. And that's why you only see a video once every three months from me. <laughs> um, oh, I've also gone kind of more long form recently. My videos tend to be close to half an hour now. And I don't intend to keep doing that either. But that's another another thing that keeps me from releasing regularly. I'm kind of being really cheeky with these interviews. I'm basically just trying to get career advice from other people. So here we go. Um, the struggle that I'm kind of experiencing at the moment is that I'm trying to work out if there's a specific area of uh, creativity or music or music education that I need to niche down on, not just, not specifically YouTube, but kind of just in my life. So my day job is in music education. I'm a, a glorified teaching assistant basically by day. I do weekly YouTube videos. I do these Cubase live streams. Um, my YouTube content varies from here's something that annoyed me at work today to can you please stop looking at your hands when you play guitar to you know that funny thing Bart Simpson said well I remixed it and I'm just yeah I'm wondering if you've ever been at a point where you've felt like you're doing too many different things or if you think that's a hindrance um, this this seems to be a pattern with creative people that they try to do all these different pockets of different things without any kind of um unifying theme i guess there was a there was a question in there somewhere <laughs> i i guess the first thing is let's i mean let's chat about niches um so by niche you kind of mean um you're doing podcasts i know you're doing that you've got i think two youtube channels you're a music educator uh, you write a lot of music that's already five things i can think of um and i i'm getting the sense that you feel quite a bit spread in all those different things so when you say niche do you mean like should i focus in on the YouTube channel or one of the YouTube channels or focus in on podcasting and drop one of the, one of the other things? Kind of, yeah. I mean, let, let's just stick with the YouTube thing for the moment. So my content is 
there isn't necessarily a unifying thing. When I started, it was about, these are some things about playing guitar, not necessarily here's a lick of the day, but like, I see guitarists do that, I think it's dumb, here's why you shouldn't do that. But people tend to not watch those videos, which is how come I've ended up doing more production side of things or Simpsons remixes, basically. When something's not working, you have to shake it up. That's that's my uh, this, this is just my own feeling about my own stuff. Uh, uh, now, like to be honest with you, I I had a lot of faith in my own format just because mm. the uh, the video essay format. I'm not going to turn this into talking about me. I'm just giving an example. Um, the video the video essay format is long established. Um, I don't have to focus in the camera myself, so I didn't have to rely on my own performance uh, the way that some YouTubers do, and that's something that takes a bit of time. Uh, like I'm nowhere near as camera ready as you are, or Adam Neely, or mm. David Bruce, or any of these people are. It's more worrying for me. Um, but. Uh, I have obviously worked in a whole lot of different places um, and I've done a lot of video content you know, professionally. Uh, and when something's not working, if you're doing a series of some kind, you need to shake it up in every single respect. So maybe I would say, maybe take the camera off your face sometimes. Maybe maybe think of a, think of some, uh, do you write scripts? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I write scripts, so I was going to suggest do or don't write scripts. But like, um, maybe, a, maybe you experiment with your videos are usually around the same length as mine, like 9, 10, 11 minutes or something, I think, right? I Yeah, I'm trying to cut them down to sort of the two, three minute mark where possible. But like, well, you know, the struggle, there's a lot to be said in these subjects. So like cutting down doesn't feel right. I'm actually falling into the trap here of being pedantic with 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 unnecessary. Like these are the stats, and these these aren't actually important. Yeah. Um. I shouldn't be asking you about the, how much time you're using because that's re- irrelevant. How mm. much time you need is the amount of time something should take. Um, yeah. There's definitely okay. There's definitely the algorithm game, which is release short little packages every day. And let's not go into that. I mean, we all know that particular piece of advice. Um, I yeah. If, um, I would I would shake things up and kind of go. Maybe I should turn the camera on other things. Maybe I should do like. You release, I think, every week. Maybe I should try see how what I can do in a month, mm. or maybe just start somewhere and start editing together a video based on a single idea and try look at it from different perspectives. Take yourself out of your comfort zone. Bring the camera elsewhere. Maybe use clips. You already use clips of other things, but introduce yeah. clips. Um, and also um, another one I, th- I think is quite useful uh, when I write scripts. I usually write a script or two. I've always got like the next couple of YouTube videos planned. Yeah. Um, I put them in a drawer. Uh, I go off and I do something else because I'm, I'm, I'm a bit like you. I'm, I'm quite spread around. I come mm. back to the script later and I read through the script and I make sure that every single line that does not a line wasted, that does not a bit where I'm saying something where it's kind of irrelevant, where I'm sort of trailing off and I try to keep it just absolutely iron, yeah, like in its in, in its flow from one place to another. I don't always succeed, but that's what I try to do. Mm. Um, and, I, and, and for me, like going back over the script a couple of times is really important. That said, when I do write the script, I don't necessarily read out every word I said there. Uh, I, I try to write the script in a way so that I can kind of talk over in a style that feels more natural to me. But that's my own. Yeah, so kind of jumping off points rather than, I am reading a script now. These are the words on the page. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it depends. There is an art to reading a script and sounding like you're you're, um, you're doing it legit. And I would say, well, let's say the music score video, there's no way I could have jumped off the cuff on most, <clears throat> on most of those points. Um I had to like I, I'm basically reading off a page uh, for most of that. Same with the Shostakovich one. With the, let's say the Hallelujah one and some of the earlier ones, I'm definitely I've written out what I'm going to say, but I'm not necessarily saying every word. Um, yeah, that's another one. I I, I think you know I, I don't actually know what your process is. You might do all these things, um, but that those are the kind of things that work for me. And definitely shaking up the format. Sure. Um, if something's not working. Nice one. You've described some things that I, that I am doing, but I'm I'm always wondering. Oh, is this? I know there isn't a right way to necessarily do anything in creative industry, but I'm always wondering. Like, is this a massive waste of time? Is there a better way to do this? So it, it is. It's nice to reinforce the aspects of stuff 
that I am doing. So I'm I'm the same as you. I think I've got I've some ungodly number of scripts in the bag, something like fifty or sixty going back for the last two years. I put them in a Google nothing like that, but yeah, like too many videos. I stick them in a Google Docs folder and then like every now and again I'll go through and like, oh yeah, no, that one's been on my mind recently. Let's try and go through that script. And then eventually they'll come to the fore. So like there's another thing and and, and even though this is also this falls into the 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 um same category as those kind of annoying websites to go, here's how you're a famous YouTuber. Here's how to be a famous YouTuber. Oh, just just use, you know, short and choppy words that people like and want to read about or want to watch and put them in your video and use keywords and all this. But the, but the two in particular that I, I paid a lot more attention to around the time my channel started getting some views were like really paying attention to the keywords and tags. Yeah. Like when I started doing that, that really made an impact. Yeah. Um, and also uh, just paying a lot of attention to the thumbnail. Um, especially like, um, like for me, I make sure I try to make sure that my thumbnails stand distinct from ones I've done before, but have something in common with them. Yeah, yeah. Some people obviously use their use their face a lot. Like I know Adam Neely uses his face in a very identifiable question answer sort of format, mm. so that so that you know you kind of know that it's new because he's put really big words over the yeah. top of it that like let you know that. Um, but the but the keyword one that's like the dark art. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, I, there's a lot of different services. Um, some you can buy, some you can go on for free, like the Google Analy- Analytics one that lets you. Um, I don't remember the name of it, unfortunately, that that lets you try out a couple of keywords and see how relevant it is. And, and that's really important. And also cutting out the ones that aren't doing well for you, like going back into old videos and seeing, well, I've actually used all kinds of stupid keywords like music. You know, you're not, not going to get, no, never put music as your keyword. Uh, that's the description of your channel. Um, oh, actually, that's another one. Um, for ages, my channel was, um, my channel, I think, was he- headed, titled, as in the actual description of my channel was, I think, entertainment or maybe something else. I actually, I had miss categorized my own channel for ages when i changed that to music that was an, that was also around the time my channel started doing well so i think i think there's actually some basic settings stuff that people should pay attention to you know um, again i i'm sure you're doing all that but i'm i'm also just aiming that outwards as well because because for me when i started getting better at that stuff that really really helped you know and i can see big differences in old videos when i tweak a certain word like my star wars one that's the biggest swing and a miss i've ever i've ever had like that that got absolutely that was Dead it, it, around, and I released it around the time of the release of the the Return of the not Return, whatever that awful movie is called, not the Return of the Jedi, the Last Jedi, and uh, and I t- I really I timed that well, and it just did nothing, and then later on I I tweaked some of the the keywords in it a bit, and then suddenly I mean it didn't do amazingly, but suddenly yeah it's over like one hundred and fifty or something thousand views, which is great. It's interesting you mentioned the um the the category side of things because you I think you have a channel category and then every video you upload you can change the category as well so my I think currently I'm on how to and style because I feel like when I upload a video under the music category I get spam comments telling me that like I can promote my SoundCloud channel for free and I'm like you have this is well obviously it is spam but also it's spam that is irrelevant so am I trying to get the wrong kind of views because music implies I'm uh, it's a music performance or a music video rather than music education. That's exactly what I my my issues. I I because I was getting nothing elsewhere. I thought uh, my problem with honestly I, my problem I think we, how to and this is me imagining based on how I, how I can just from actually working in massive corporations how some of these things are broken down. I, I I'm guessing that how to is going to fall more under DIY makeup tutorials. Um, and I'd worry a bit because uh, like, I, I'm pretty certain that all the other YouTubers are all under the category of music. Uh, I certainly am. Um, and, and 
yeah, and I kind of I feel like it's a catch-all because you might be because remember YouTube doesn't really know that you're giving a tutorial necessarily. But if you've got like <laughs> if you've got Britney Spears in the title, it's going to start linking you linking you to other Britney Spears and. Um, yeah, and I, I guess if your category isn't music, it might think you're making a Britney Spears diorama or something. I don't know. Yeah. That's my guess. It's really dumb, it, it, but you're right. It needs to be split out into into other categories. That is actually a good answer in, in general. Your whole response is good to reinforce the things that I know I'm doing. But I think, yeah, I might try and shake up the format a little bit or I might try and... I think I want to publish more music on YouTube and not just Simpsons remixes, but actually try and be more creative and demonstrate that I am actually a working musician. I am actually creating music. So when I do a tutorial on something, you can see here's me using it in practice as well. Something other than just a track created specifically for that video. And I think this is all good stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And I think this is all good stuff to sort of reinforce if a viewer watching this is interested in doing their own YouTube or if they're in a similar situation to me, but not trying the same stuff. So thanks for that. And I've got my, my signature end question. Now, the, the thing with this question is that it's got to be specific to your experience in music or in life. So if I were to ask any other musician or any other creative person, YouTuber, whatever, their advice would be different. Um, so, for example, uh, 12 Tone Corey, their answer would be specific to them. Your answer specific to you. What was 12 Tone's answer? That way I can perhaps rob it. Uh, well, so the question is, what is one piece of advice that you can give to a musician that's unique to your experience. Don't get bogged down in music theory was the gist of it. If you've learned how to do something, if you've learned a specific writing technique, that's amazing. But that doesn't mean you have to put it into every single piece of music, which I thought was brilliant considering oh, that's, their content that's is good. what it is. It's good that, I mean, yeah, that's great. Obviously shows like he, he has the perfect distance from from his own subject to be able to recognize exactly when it's appropriate and when maybe it's you're overusing it or something. Um, I mean, you can see it time and time again. I, I'm sorry to delve into this, but you can see sometimes a person's going, "Hey, uh, um, shouldn't you move from you know the? Uh, I don't know. You can't remove from a diminished fifth to a first. That uh, you can't do that because in my theory book you can't do that. That's yeah, but I just did it and it sounded epic. So whatever. It looks sounds great. Actually, who would ever say that? Yeah, of course you can move from. <laughs> That's <laughs> my favorite transition. Um, anyway, uh, what was going to say? One of the things that I try to always remind myself not to do is to be too um, ideological, I guess, when writing music and to avoid musical ideologies. And I guess like, I mean, a, a classic one would be you come across some people who think that music, you know, is no good if it can't be danced to. They have like this little idea in their head about what music should be. And it's in effect a kind of ideology, but but also classical musicians have this too. It's not just people who maybe aren't trained in music. I mean, you have like the famous non-tonality versus tonality kind of thing. That if oh music in this day and age after Schoenberg, if you if you have you know if your music's really tonal, then you know it's kind of lame, or maybe you're not pushing yourself enough and all this. I think uh, another type of of one that really bothers me is this this unattainable quality of newness that people are always going on about uh, especially especially younger people seem to think that if your music isn't new this displaying this quality of new then 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 it's it's old and therefore it's bad and and one i think one of the the, the one of the examples of that would be again tonality people kind of going oh well it sounds like kind of tonality you heard from older pieces of music and again i kind of think that sort of ideology can sometimes mask the fact that there are other ways of describing things in music um, other than just, you know, what kind of tonality you're using. I mean, obviously, that was the entire idea of of um, serialism in the first place, which is 
let's keep let's get away from tonality let's get away from from the you know classic western harmony let's find other let's focus in on other types of things in, in uh, and let's use this as the framework to allow us to do that let's experiment with structures and all this uh, and i think another one which i grew up with was the sort of punk aesthetic which is uh you know hooked into this concept of commercialism um which would be you know if a band doesn't display these kind of values and if they don't um if they don't wear these kind of clothes and if they're if they're on a particular type of label then they're going to be crap and again it's just you're using shortcuts to making your musical decisions there you're using biases and they're sometimes wrong and they're sometimes right you know um just be a little careful and i guess 12 tone picked out one of the most obvious ones which is don't allow theory to don't 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 look at the theory book and see the way the theory book describes that music works and then and then just do that in your own music because that's like another form of hard ideology and it's something that I because I definitely fall into the you know all of us are ideological in our thinking and music in a way the way it's even the way we talk about it the actual term music itself is problematic because it describes all kinds of things that aren't actually the same like you got music with vocals in it and the vocals are saying something and that's usually quite programmatic so that's almost telling you what the music is and that's on one side and then you have instrumental music which isn't saying something which isn't doesn't necessarily have a program and that's on the other side to me those are like nearly irreconcilable types of thing and they don't fall under the category of music for me it's just they're just completely different and you can't use categories to judge one to necessarily judge the other and I think that hurts people when they're trying to figure out whether rap is music kind of go well no yeah kinda yes it's a type of music you know and it, it it's it's music is not good enough as a description for these things it's just too it's too vague and I think and anyway like I, I, that that's the term ideology is one I, I often use myself to figure out whether I think someone is judging honestly or or openly or whether they're falling into some sort of bias some something that they've read or some sort of like learned attitude perfect I love um, it uh, so the last thing is and I'll I'll do this formally again when it's not the hottest it's ever been uh, but do you have a preference for where people go to find out more about you website twitter oh, or presumably that's, youtube that's there yeah, that's a good question it has to be youtube at the moment because <laughs> yeah i'm um this is actually something that came up with david bruce's video that we were all we were all involved in oh yeah yeah i was have a lot of music and i'm in the middle of putting it all together and remastering it and blah 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 and some of it i don't want to release some of it i'm in the middle of recording that i've written for years and people are like asking uh, like on my channel and other videos as well. Where's this guy's music? You know, he goes on about being a musician. And, and you know, Adam Neely pointed it out, Ben Levin pointed it out, David Bruce pointed it out, and now I'm just kind of getting self-conscious about it. So it's something that I'm actively doing is putting together my music so you can actually go and hear it, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, I'll keep, keep, I'll keep you posted, but stick to the YouTube channel and Twitter. There would be the two places that I would, that I would definitely shout out when I have something. Wicked, nice one. Thank you so much for your time, Martin. I really appreciate it. And um yeah, we'll keep in touch. Cheers, man. Thanks again to Martin Keery for giving up his time. You can find Martin on Twitter at Tantacrawl or on YouTube if you search for Tantacrawl, T-A-N-T-A-C-R-U-L. He's got a whole load of videos up there. His background, as you now know, is in UI and software design. So he has a lot of interesting things to say about music software. He has some really brutally brutally funny videos about music, uh, the way we write music, the way we play music, and the way we record music, as well as the software that we use to do that. So I would highly recommend that channel. So I guess I just got to plug my own stuff. 
if you want to leave this podcast a positive review on whatever app you are using now that would sincerely really help especially if you leave a written review specifically stating what you like about this podcast it sounds like a tiny gesture but i kid you not that is one of the most helpful things a human could do for me at this moment in time I am on all kinds of social media. I am at LT Guitarist, all one word, on Twitch, Twitter, and TikTok. If you can believe that, I am also at Liam Taylor Guitar on YouTube. I believe I'm also on Mixer. I think that's LT Guitarist. That is something I really should know. My twice weekly live streams go out to YouTube, Twitch, Mixer, and Periscope simultaneously because I'm a genius and I am uploading some kind of content somewhere online on Fridays, whether that's a podcast like this, whether it's a new piece of music, or whether it's a YouTube video of some kind. I'm pretty sure that's everything. Yes, I will see you in the next episode of the LT Guitarist Podcast. Cheers and bye. <laughs>